able to follow along. Uh, a number of the seats that you're sitting in have uh, Bibles underneath you. Uh, you can pull out those Bibles and follow along as we read. Uh, we're going to pick up in our systematic study of the book of Matthew, right where we last left off. Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Matthew, verse by verse. And now we've come to Jesus' final week that leads him to the cross. And it's going to take us more than a week um, of Sundays probably to get there all through it because it's a, a great still number of chapters. But keep in mind the chronology of it as we go through this. Okay? All right. Will you stand as we read this morning's text? We're going to be, uh, as I mentioned, Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be reading verses 12 through 22 this morning. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to understand what was going on in that day and time, but also what the Lord would want to say to us today. Amen? Let's, pr- uh, let's read Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. It begins... Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt, you will not only do what, you, what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you in prayer, believing believing that you want to speak to our hearts this morning, believing that you have a word for us as a, as a church body, but I also believe that you have a word for us as individuals. And so, Father, I pray that you would open the hearts and ears and minds of everyone here this morning, that we would receive what you would have for us Lord, that we would allow your word to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray just for your blessings upon uh, the ministry here uh, this morning, the children's ministry and the nursery. We thank you for those who have uh, made the sacrifice to uh, not be here amongst the group so that they uh, can minister to some kids on their own level and allow us to, to... Uh, focus upon what you have as well here. 
Lord, even the other churches and chapels that are meeting uh, in Iwakuni this morning, we pray that you would do a great work within them as well. Lord, that they would uh, love uh, with the love that you give. Lord, that they would uh, boldly declare your word. And uh, Lord, that you just do a wonderful work here in this community. Lord, we thank you for the season that we're in. We thank you for this day, trusting and and knowing you have a a good work in store for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our opening verse tells us that Jesus went into the temple. And as we read this account, uh, if you were with us last week when we covered uh, the triumphal entry, it would seem that the cleansing of the temple takes place immediately after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. I mean, verse 11 kind of is the close of the triumphal entry. Verse 12, he goes into the temple and cleanses it. Uh, We know, however, that this isn't the case. Okay, based upon what Mark tells us in his gospel record. Okay, Mark tells us that after Jesus and his disciples entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that they did go to the temple. But we're told that Jesus didn't overturn the tables at that time. In fact, Mark explains to us that Jesus entered the temple on Palm Sunday and simply looked around. And he made observations. And then he returned to Bethany citing that it was because the hour was already late. And so as they made in and they finally got there, he just made observations and then went out to Bethany. Okay? After spending the evening in Bethany, and I have no doubt, thinking about what he saw there at the temple, we pick up the account with Jesus' entry back into the city of Jerusalem on Monday morning. And he and the disciples headed straight for the temple. As Jesus entered into the temple, we're told that he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. This is a a, a picture, a a scene that we don't normally would associate with Jesus. Uh, Kind of a a guy going in there and overturning tables and driving people out is not the same uh, Lamb of God, let the children come to me type of person that we imagine. But it's still Jesus Christ. He was very passionate about his father's house. He entered uh, the temple and he started cleaning house. Uh, driving out the things that didn't belong in his father's house, taking out the trash, so to say. And this isn't actually the first time that Jesus has done this uh, either. John records for us in his gospel that Jesus had did a similar thing at the onset of his earthly ministry. In John chapter 2, after Jesus had turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, uh, we read of him traveling to Jerusalem during the Passover, during the same season uh, that he's in right now. In fact, if you want to turn to John and read that, you can. It's in John chapter 2. I'm going to make my way there and read uh, from John 2. In John chapter 2... We'll start at verse 13 and go down to verse uh, 6. Actually, I think I only have 14 up there, right? We'll do 
You'll have to follow 13 in your Bibles, okay? All right, verse 13 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. As the disciples witnessed Jesus driving out people and animals alike and flipping over the tables and tossing money all over the place, probably with their jaws down to the floor, verse 17 tells us that they were reminded of the psalm that declares, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus had a zeal for his father's house. That word zeal, it means to have a fervor of spirit or a fierceness of an indignation. Jesus was immensely passionate about his father's house and what should and shouldn't be happening there. And what he saw, it ate him up. In John 2, Jesus accused the people of turning his father's house into a house of merchandise. And the word used in the Greek is the word emporion. Okay? It's where we get the English word emporium. Okay? Uh, a place where commerce takes place, buying, selling. Basically, they had churned the outer temple into a huge marketplace. What sort of merchandise were they selling? Well, they were selling oxen and sheep and doves. Why? Because those were the different types of animals that were used as offerings in worship. Now, some of you may think, now wait a second. What's so bad with doing that? You know, these these people were providing worshipers with a service, uh, making available to them the animals that were needed for them to worship the Lord. Even the money changers were there to offer a service, okay? For those that had traveled from afar and they didn't have the proper temple currency uh, that was expected in their giving. You know, some Bible commentators, they suggest that Jesus was upset merely because these merchants were ripping off the people, that they were charging outrageous Uh, uh, inflated prices for these sacrificial animals and that the money changes were likewise taking advantage of people using a similarly inflated exchange rate. And while that is possible, nowhere in the text do we read that they were ripping the people off with their prices or with unfair exchange rates. I think also worth noting is that Jesus drove out the buyers just as he did the sellers. You know, if he was doing this solely out of anger towards those who are ripping off these people who are coming to worship, uh, why does Jesus drive them out as well? And and so I I got to thinking of that, and I want to suggest that I believe there was something else going on there that caused Jesus to respond in such a manner. I believe the Jews had made worshiping the Lord a a matter of convenience. 
No need to bring an offering. Okay, you can just get one when you get to the temple. No need to have the proper temple currency. Just exchange what you've got when you've come to the money changers. You don't need to think about anything. We've taken care of everything for you. You just come with your money and everything will be good. They had made the temple, the the father's house, into a place of convenience and consumerism. A place that yielded to the desires and the needs of the people. And that, I believe, is what I think caused indignation in our Lord. The house of the Lord is not meant to be a place of convenience, but a place of sacrifice. Not a place for consumerism to thrive, but a place where the Lord would be lifted up and that He would have preeminence, not the people. And so He drove out both buyers and sellers. You know, I, I fear for today's church and the consumerism mentality that I believe permeates a great many of churches. And I pray that the Lord would keep us from falling into such a temptation. That we wouldn't allow this place to become a place of convenience. You know, a a place where we can come and, and not think a thing about the Lord and just have our needs met. Where we want to, uh, where what we want becomes more important than what the Lord wants. I, I think we need to be challenged and stirred a little from time to time. If you come here and, and you don't feel a little uncomfortable from time to time, or, or you don't get challenged from time to time, or, or shaken maybe a little bit from time to time, then I, I think something's wrong. The purpose of this church is not primarily to serve you, but to serve the Lord and to worship Him and honor Him. You know, don't get me wrong. We want to encourage you. We want to equip you. We want to be a blessing to you. But most importantly, we want to draw you into a deeper relationship and commitment to the Lord. And and what He has for you, not what you can get from Him. If you make your way back to Matthew, we see Jesus is here doing the same thing again. He is cleaning out His Father's house. And He's driving out all of them. Not just those who were making money, if they were charging you know, in, in inflated prices. He drove them all, yeah, all out. Three years later, after cleaning out his father's house at the onset of his ministry, Jesus is here once again having to repeat his drastic measures of driving people out of the temple and overturning the tables and the chairs. Why? Why did Jesus have to do this again? Because they had once again brought things into the temple that didn't belong there. Jesus accused them of turning his father's house into a den of thieves. And I believe that is where some commentators get the notion uh, that the people were ripping uh, the worshipers off there at the temple because they called them a den of thieves. But the phrase, a den of thieves, it actually comes uh, from a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord instructed Jeremiah uh, to stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And to rebuke the people for their insincere ways. 
They were committing all sorts of great sins. It lists off a whole bunch of different ones. Stealing was one of the least of what they were doing. And then they were coming to the temple nonchalantly offering their sacrifices and thinking that they were delivered from their sins and then can just continue doing as they pleased. That's when the Lord declared through Jeremiah, Has this house, which is called by my name, become become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. In this context, we see that a a den of thieves isn't meant to single out those that steal as much as it is a description of a place where sinners felt comfortable and free from conviction or worry of judgment, a place where they they thought they can get away with things. Well, because I'm hanging out with this like-minded people. I'm hanging out with corrupt people and I can do corrupt things and then there's no accountability. I believe Jesus is making the same connection here. Sinners were coming to the temple in comfort, free from conviction, thinking that they were good as long as they went through the motions. Okay, you're going to go come in here and let me give you my money to buy a sheep here and I go over here and lay my hand on it and whoop, okay, done, I'm out of here. That was nice and easy and off doing whatever they wanted to do. So Jesus had to clean house again. And as he did so, he not only spoke against what his father's house had become, but he also identified what his father's house was supposed to be. He declared that it was written that my house shall be called a house of prayer. This morning we're going to note from our text things that were supposed to be happening in the temple. Okay? Things that the father expected to be happening in his temple, in his house. And the first thing that we note is that the house of the Lord is to be a house of prayer. You know, this phrase, house of prayer, is also a quote from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah uh, speaks of, of the heart of the Lord. For all peoples to be able to come and enter into the house of the Lord and call upon his name. And the Lord said through Isaiah, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so the context of that that quote that Jesus gives, that that his house is to be a house of prayer, it comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Okay? The Lord wanted His house to be a place that people could come to call upon His name, to seek direction, to seek guidance in their life, to know Him and to know His will for their lives. It was for all peoples to come and call upon the name of the Lord. They had, you know, some restrictions, but they had an outer temple that was open to everyone could come into the outer temple. And you can call upon the name of the Lord. And they had different pockets after that. You know, that was just for the Jews and just for the men. And they had different sections and things like that. But they had an outer court that was for everyone. Come. And this outer court is where they had set up this den of thieves. I think, excuse me, I think sometimes we approach 
prayer as a means to convince God to give us what we want instead of us giving to God what He wants. You know, prayer is so vital to the church. Throughout Scripture, we are encouraged and we are exhorted to pray. Okay? We are to continue earnestly in prayer, Colossians 4.2 tells us. We're to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. That we always ought to pray, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. That we would continue steadfastly in prayer, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 12. The church and the apostles were committed to prayer. Acts 2.42, it tells of the church and their commitment to prayer. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it describes how the apostles set themselves apart specifically for prayer uh, and the ministry of the word. Jesus was committed to prayer. Over and over you read of him getting away to pray and seek the Father, to commune with him, to speak to him, to listen to him. If it was important for Jesus, let me tell you guys, we need it too. It ought to be important to us. You know, we gather here on Wednesday nights and and we spend time praying for one another and seeking the Lord for our, our midweek study. It's a very small group, intimate group. Also, uh, every other Thursday, we're going to be gathering for a special evening of prayer. Okay? Uh, currently, we meet at my house because it's, it's such a small group. You know, uh, It would be weird to meet in the, one of these big rooms because it's only a couple people. You know, But uh, I'd love nothing more than to have to move the prayer meeting to the church because we don't have enough room in my house. The house, the Father's house, it needs to be a place of prayer. Okay. What else should be happening at the house of the Lord? Let's read verse 14. Verse 14, it says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Two different types of people are mentioned here in verse 14 that came to Jesus in the temple, and we'll look at each of them briefly. First mention was, uh, is the first group mentioned is the blind. The blind came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. Physical blindness, as you guys know, obviously is speaking about the inability to see. Symbolically, however, different kinds of blindness are portrayed throughout the Bible. The scriptures, they speak of one kind of blindness, not of sight, but of mind. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he spoke of how the children of Israel were blind. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. The Jewish leaders were blind to the fact that their Messiah had come to them. Plenty of opportunities were given for them to respond to Christ, to have the veil taken away, but they failed to seize those opportunities. You know, the the irony of, of physically blind people coming to Jesus in the temple and seeing, while the seeing religious leaders of the temple were blind to the identity of Jesus is quite amazing when you think about it. 
the blind people were able to see enough to know that this is the Messiah. And yet, the religious leaders that were there in the temple were blind to it. They didn't want to see it. Blindness is, is also portrayed as something that is uh, lost in darkness. With someone that's blind, obviously there's, they don't see light. They don't see anything. And so oftentimes you'd see uh, referred to blindness as being uh, in darkness. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us that we all were once darkness. That we all at one time were lost in the darkness of our sins. But God commanded light to shine out of darkness, and in so doing, He shone in our hearts, giving to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus declared in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so here we see pictured for us another thing that ought to take place in the Father's house. The Father's house ought to be a place where blind sinners are brought into the light of the Lord's love and grace. It's a place where people can come and receive salvation from sin. As they hear the message of of Christ and the, the power of His gospel. And that type of thing ought to be happening in the Father's house. The second type of people that came to Jesus at the temple were the lame. Okay, being lame is not how we think of being lame today. Okay? Being lame meant that you were unable to move your legs. Okay? Uh, you couldn't walk. Okay? The lame, they came to Jesus at the temple. I don't know how they got there, but they got there. Probably someone had to help them. The lame came to Jesus at the temple and they were healed of their infirmities. I almost said lameness, but I just, I was like healed of their lameness and I just couldn't say it. But I said it anyway, so. They were healed of their infirmities, signifying their ability to walk properly. No longer were they lame. They were able to walk properly. And this is something that should happen in the Father's house as well. The Father's house ought to be a place where people learn how to walk properly with the Lord. Very simple. To walk in the ways of the Lord means to follow His commands. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6 declares, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. Practically speaking, the Father's house ought to be a place where God's Word is taught so that people can learn how to walk in His ways. Very simple, but something I feel like needs to be made a point of. Because maybe that's not happening in, in, in some churches. Okay? We need, the Father's house needs to be a place where people can learn how to walk properly with the Lord. The one that teaches the Word showing practically the commandments of God and how we're to walk in them. Well, continuing, let's look at verses 15 through 17 here. It says, But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. 
Have you never heard? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. We'll stop there. This amazes me. This really does amaze me. The chief priests and scribes, I'm going to put this in quotations, they see okay, Jesus doing wonderful things, and then they become indignant. Really? To me, this is just further evidence to their spiritual blindness, that they could see the blind, and they can see the lame healed right before their eyes within the temple, okay? and still not see that Jesus was of God, it's nearly unbelievable. Like when I read that, I'm like, how could that be? And yet it was. In verse 15, we're told about some children that were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! And this is the same phrase that the people were crying just the day before uh, on on Palm Sunday as he made his way into Jerusalem. The the people were crying out this same phrase. And as mentioned last week, Hosanna, it's from a Hebrew word that means save now. And the phrase son of David was a messianic title used to describe the coming king of the Jews. And so when they say Hosanna, they're, they're saying save now. They're acknowledging their need for a Savior. They're saying, you're the Savior. I need you to save me. That's what Hosanna is, is saying, save now. And when they call him the son of David, they are identifying him with the coming king of the Jews. And so basically these children were properly identifying Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, which also caused anger to well up within these religious elites. In verse 16, they approach Jesus. They ask him if he hears what these children are saying. I'm sure if the kids were crying it out, that Jesus heard it. Because when my kids cry things out, everybody in the neighborhood hears it. And these kids are crying it out. They ask, hey, do you hear what these people are, these kids are saying? And in his response, Jesus quoted from Psalm uh, 8, verse 2. Uh, which in the NIV it actually reads, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Jesus declares that these kids have perfected praise. What about this praise was so right? What, what made this praise perfect? Or, or that word can also be complete or, or set up just this idea of this foundation. It's rock solid, uh, complete, perfect. What was it? doesn't tell us exactly, but I think that it has to do with them properly identifying Jesus as Savior and King. Okay? Praise, this, praise that does not enthrone Christ as King, nor declare our desperate need for Him as Savior, falls short. In these children, I see one more example of things that ought to take place in the Father's house, and it's simply that the Father's house ought to be a place that's filled with the praise of God. You know, when we gather here and we sing His praises, we do so to enthrone Jesus as King and proclaim our need for Him. And I know not everybody likes, maybe they kind of like the word a little bit better, or they kind of don't like singing, or don't think that's maybe manly, or I don't know. I I know some people struggle with it. But we're going to keep doing it here, okay? Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what should be happening in God's house. 
Okay? Praises should be lifted up. God should be enthroned in our lives and in our hearts as King, and we should be crying out to Him as our Savior because we are in desperate need of Him. That's what we sing. Some of you guys may think it's not manly. It is manly. I don't know how that came in to the church that, you know, that it's not manly to sing praises to Jesus. Because it is. And I want to encourage you guys to feel... I'm blessed. I, I, got, I sit in the front row for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons I love to sit in the front row is because I get to hear the church praising God. When you kind of sit in the back, you just hear the speakers sometimes. You don't hear the people. It's a blessing. House ought to be a place of praise. Let's continue on. Okay, verse 17, it says, Then he left them and went out to the city of to Bethany, and he lodged there. Jesus, he left the chief priests and the scribes. He went out to the city of Bethany. Uh, we're not told exactly where he stayed, but it's very likely that he probably stayed at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, from very good friends of his that had a house in Bethany. We find later on that when he returns to Bethany, he is with them. And so it's very likely that he's staying there. And this brings Monday to a close. Okay? Uh, so let's move on and see what happens here Tuesday morning. We have uh, enough time here. Uh, as Jesus and the disciples, they are making their way back into the city of Jerusalem. Let's read verses 18 and 19. It says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. This is speaking of Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. The next morning, Jesus and the disciples, they leave Bethany without getting breakfast. And and this wouldn't be that weird of a thing to do. We've read of how Jesus and the disciples uh, would often eat something on the road during their travels. They would pick grains from fields at times. Uh, sometimes they would, you know, hey, who's got some lunch? They would share it, and they took some kids. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? And the kid's like, I got a little bit here. And there was a lot of sharing going on. So that's not a weird thing that they didn't eat uh, before they make their way into the city. And as they get going, the text tells us that Jesus was hungry. And so he approached a fig tree to pick some figs to snack on. But something was wrong with the fig tree. Verse 19 says that he found nothing on the fig tree but leaves. Now Jesus here, he does something again here that may seem a little outside of his character. Jesus, he, he curses the fig tree, pronouncing, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And, and from the outside looking on, it, it must have seen like a very, seemed like a very selfish, uh, selfishly pronoun, a selfish pronouncement by Jesus. Cursing a tree and causing it to wither just because it didn't have any breakfast on it for him. But there's more at play here than just a barren fig tree. Just as Jesus' cleansing of the temple was an act of judgment upon Israel and the religious leaders for what they had done to his father's house, so too this cursing of the fig tree was a judgment against Israel. You see in the Bible, okay, Israel depicted on numerous occasions in connection with figs or fig trees. 
throughout the uh, Old Testament prophets, Israel is likened to figs and fig trees, even within the New Testament. Uh, Luke's parable of the barren fig tree, it's understood that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Okay? And later on in Matthew chapter 24, uh, when we get to the Olivet Discourse, we're going to read of another parable that ties Israel to the picture of a fig tree. And so this is a very easy type and, and picture to see here, that this fig tree is a representation of the nation of Israel. And so this cursing of the fig tree, it's seen as a judgment against the nation of Israel. It's not something Jesus did in frustration for not getting breakfast. The fig tree had all sorts of leaves on it. Externally and from afar, it looked like it was ripe and healthy. Uh, Just had it going on, okay? But upon closer inspection, there wasn't any fruit on this tree. And so too was the Jewish nation. They had their religious leaders that looked the part. And they had their temple set up. And sacrifices were being offered. And tithes and offerings were being given. Things were running like a well-oiled machine there. There was just one very big glaring problem. There wasn't any fruit. They were fruitless. They looked the part. Hey, if you, you read some of the things, they had the phylacteries and they had the, look how holy I am, I'm my prayer thing out here and my robes and I got the whole get up going on. But it was all on the exterior. It was all external. Lord, the Lord looks beyond the exterior. God looks at the heart. And here he's saying the heart's not there. It's all show. I want to tell you, God is looking for fruit in our lives. The Father is, is desires for us to be fruitful. We need to be careful that we don't fall into this same trap. Hey, we don't want to just look the part and come to church, and we have our Bible, and we have our catchphrases, our Christianity, and all that kind of stuff. But on the inside, there's no fruit. We don't want that. Be careful. We don't want to be big, leafy, fruitless trees. How do we ensure that we remain fruitful? I think the answer is found in the next set of verses. Let's read verses 20 through 22. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. The disciples, they were amazed at how fast the fig tree withered away. And they, and they actually asked Jesus, how did that happen? You know? uh, and in verse 21 and 22, it's interesting because Jesus turns this into a lesson about faith. And, and as we consider the cursing of the fig tree, it may not be so obvious as to how the lesson of the fig tree is really rooted in faith. You kind of feel like, that seems like it's from left field a little bit. Jesus explained to his disciples that this miracle was really the result of a prayer made in faith. 
See, Jesus said, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll be able to do this and, and even more, suggesting that they would even be able to move mountains through similar prayers of faith. And in verse 22, he stated, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This promise of answered prayer has led some to fall prey to the prosperity gospel out there that encourages people to name it and claim it, or blab it and grab it, as I like to say. Okay? And it's wrong. Okay? We always want to have a balanced approach to the Word of God. And so I want, to, I want to look at what James has to say about prayer. James, in chapter 4, verse 3, this is what he says. He says, You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. Pleasures, excuse me. James very clearly tells us that God isn't going to answer our prayers that are focused upon our own selfish pleasure. Ple- and I'm having a difficult time with that word. Pleasures. Okay? If you think, the, if you think the, the promise from verse 22 is going to get you that fancy new car with the turbo engine and the sound system and all that kind of stuff, you're very greatly mistaken. Prayer is not us getting what we want. It's not about getting our pleasures. And, and James says, that kind of prayer, that you got no chance. This promise of answered prayer is based upon first coming to the Lord in faith in prayer. When we really come to the Lord in faith and prayer for His will and not our own, I do believe there's power in those prayers. When you submit yourself to the Lord and He begins to speak to you, showing you what His will is, what He wants, and we begin to pray accordingly, I am confident that the Lord will answer those prayers because they're led of the Lord. Remember, prayer is not getting our will done, but seeking the Father's will and submitting to it. Remember that we talked about that already. When we come to prayer, it's not... We can make requests... But we always have to keep in mind, we want to come to the Lord and find out what He wants, not just give Him a list of what we want. And so when we come to, to, to the Lord in a, in a prayer of faith, where we say, Lord, what do you want? And He starts to say, this is what I want. And we start praying in accordance. You can be confident that God is going to work through that situation. I believe that wholeheartedly. Looking at this lesson of faith, what does it have to do with the nation of Israel and Jesus cursing the fig tree? Follow with me, okay, just for a second. Jesus just rebuked the Jewish people for turning his father's house into a den of thieves when it was meant to be a house of prayer. The obvious indictment is that they weren't coming to the father in prayer as he ascribed. They had turned it into a den of thieves. It wasn't a house of prayer. And then he then symbolically cursed the nation via the fig tree for being fruitless. And then he speaks about faith-filled prayers. You see, there is a direct correlation to faith in both prayer and fruitfulness. When we lack faith and have unbelief in our hearts, we don't pray the way that we're supposed to. Likewise, when we have unbelief in our life, we become oftentimes fruitless. 
And so there's a connection between faith and fruitfulness. The nation of Israel, Israel had allowed unbelief to settle into their hearts. As the Lord inspected and looked, He said, there's no fruit. It caused fruitlessness in their life. They looked the part, but they had nothing to show for their faith because they never had faith to begin with. You know, I asked the question earlier, how do we ensure that we remain faithful? The answer is found in, or excuse me, how do we remain fruitful? The answer is found in remaining faithful. When you and I are faithful, we will be fruitful as well. Faithfulness and fruitfulness, they go hand in hand. God wants us to be faithful with what he's given to us, faithful to do that which he asks of us. In today's portion of scripture, we noted some things that, you know, we talked about faithfulness and fruitfulness just now, but mainly looking at things that shouldn't have been happening in the Father's house and things that should have been happening in the Father's house. And and we made the connection that we want uh, those things to be true of our church body here. Okay, like it was in that day. He, there was an expectation that Jesus was in the temple, right? People came, the lame came, the blind came. He was at the temple. He says, it's a house of prayer. They were at the temple and praise was happening. So that the, the correlation was then and there in Jerusalem. He's encouraging that it should be that way. But I think our church, I hope and pray that you feel like the Lord's presence is here and that we could identify this as the house of the Lord and that those things ought to be happening here. And so we make that connection with our, with our church here but I, I can't help but think of the personal application as well. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There was a temple then, and there was this application for them. But our bodies, if you're walking with the Lord, if you are a Christian here, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we describe the, to the temple of God, the Father's house is a place where prayer is happening, where blind sinners are being exposed to the light of Christ, where lame people are learning how to walk and where praise is being lifted up, the same ought to be true of us as individuals. We need to be a people of prayer. We need to be a light that shines brightly for those around us who are lost in darkness. We need to be in the words that we can learn how to walk properly with God. And we need to be a people of praise. And some of us, some of us need to be willing to let Jesus come in and clean house. Even if he's already cleaned it once before, you need to let him in again. And he needs to come in and clean house. We can't have any shame in that. We need to be willing to say, God, I need you to come clean up again. You see, that, that's the thing about houses sometimes. No matter how clean you get them, it seems to always find a way to get dirty again. I think a lot of moms are, are shaking their heads out there. Okay? We allow things to come in that we had previously cleaned out. Okay? 
things slowly begin to accumulate. And instead of dealing with them, we do our best to hide them, to cover them up. Not that I know this from experience, but I think the closet is a place that's used oftentimes. We throw some stuff in the closet. People are coming over, throw it into the closet, sweep it under the rug. You do all sorts of different things, right, to to cover it up. But what we really need to do is just let Jesus come back in and clean house. And if that's where you're at today, I want to encourage you to allow the Lord to do that. And it's okay to say, God, you know what? I've made a mess of it again. And I need you, I need your help to, to clean it up. I pray that we would all be willing to do that if that's what the Lord was telling us to do. Okay. Well, this morning I pray that you are, were challenged a bit. Okay? To grow more in your relationship with the Lord because really that's what we're here for. I hope... I want it to be a blessing. I know it's not too convenient because the AC is not working very well. It's a little warm in here. I didn't do that on purpose, I promise. Okay? Let's hopefully be challenged and open with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can... We can read it and, and understand that it, it had an application some 2,000 years ago, then and there, and yet, Lord, you use it to speak to our lives today in 2014 in Iwakuni, Japan. Lord, I pray that we would allow your word to impact our lives. Lord, that if there's things that... As we look at this, and Jesus had to come in and clean house, and he had to do it more than once. Lord, if we're in a situation where we just say, Lord, I know you've already cleaned out once, but I've made a mess of it again, that we would be not too prideful to to be willing to say, yeah, God, I need you to help me clean this mess up again. Lord, that we would be a people that that are a people defined and characterized as people of prayer and people of praise, people that shine out uh, your light within us people that uh, are growing in our walk with you. Lord, that we would be fruitful and faithful. Lord, we cannot do it on our own. We need your power. We need your help. Lord, we need your grace. And we thank you for the promise of your grace, that it's new every morning. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. May we grow each and every day, more in love with you and closer to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.